Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 142nd edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, a digital forensics, managed cybersecurity, and managed information technology firm in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is, what constitutes ethical cybersecurity for law firms today? Today, Sharon and I are going to discuss how much cybersecurity has changed over the past year, giving us pause for thought about how lawyers should be looking at cybersecurity in 2023, because ethical standards for cybersecurity have evolved very quickly during 2022. Our overriding question is, what does reasonable cybersecurity mean as we move into 2023? You know, I think, John, that that question has been answered more than usually with some force during the course of this year. A lot of ethicists are speaking about it, particularly about ethics rules 1.1, competence, and 1.6, confidentiality. Those are the two primary rules which are impacted by cybersecurity, though certainly there are others. But the standard for both is reasonableness. But what's reasonable has certainly changed over time. As we're all always saying, sadly, there is no set it and forget it with cybersecurity. You know, we find every day as we read that something else crosses our vision and we say, oh, gosh, we got to do something about this at this firm or whatever. (laughs) It's never ending, right? Oh, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So both John and I have had the great privilege of working with and speaking with legal ethicists across the country since we do so many presentations. So what we're telling you today is pretty much in keeping with what other folks are saying. And all the measures we will talk about today are deemed reasonable or are getting to be reasonable, and we'll try to sort those out. So let's begin. And John, for a very, very long time, law firms believed that their servers should be on-premise, that it was dangerous to put law firm data in the cloud. Now, since the pandemic hit, we've seen virtually all law firms move their data to the cloud if it wasn't already there. Why is that now so important, and especially to ethics? The reality is that the cloud is going to protect the firm's data a heck of a lot better than the firm can do themselves. Now, there are exceptions. You know, if you're a very, very large mega firm, you're dumping a lot of money into infrastructure, security, et cetera. If you're AMLA 10, you know, certainly there's a lot of a lot of bucks you're spending. But generally, most law firms, you know, the solo small and mid-market in particular, they're not doing those kinds of investments. The cloud providers, however, I mean, they've got full-time security professionals on staff. That's all they do. They eat, sleep, breathe cybersecurity. They're constantly patching. They're constantly doing the reviews. They're, they're checking. They're monitoring. They're doing all those things to make sure that they've got the utmost in, in a secure environment. They can actually protect, you know, the, the firm's information much, much better. But going to the cloud, you know, certainly has, has had some great advantages. We're becoming a more and more mobile workforce, right? And there's more work from home environment. There's more, you know, partial work in the office, work from home, the whole hybrid thing. The cloud's more scalable. 
But the whole hybrid environment, you know, has changed the landscape, I think, Sharon, to what you led into is that reasonable, right? As This is one of the primary drivers as to why things have changed, you know, so much during 2022. But specifically for the cloud, I just want to point out the folks that want on-premise equipment versus going to the cloud. And I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but we only have one client, right, as a holdout that has an on-premise solution. Everybody else is in the cloud, right? <laughs> There's just one, and we're still working on them. But, you know, it, it, believe it or not, it's really tough to sell people good advice. <laughs> yeah, well, I, th- I think that one client, though, if my memory's right, they have an international client that actually has forced them as a law firm to make sure that they have their data on-prem. So that's a kind of a unique situation for them. But all the other law firms that we deal with, which is hundreds, everybody's in the cloud. But in particular, I want to talk about Microsoft Exchange. And Microsoft Exchange, oh, geez, I'm going to get the dates wrong here. But if my memory's right, end of last year, end of 2021, there were four zero-day vulnerabilities that were discovered. And then once those things were discovered, what happened? Cyber criminals were out attacking the on-premise exchange servers, all four vulnerabilities simultaneously. I think the important part is it wasn't just cyber criminals that were doing it. These are state-sponsored folks. That's as the folks did the investigations, they discovered that. So, all right, well, now that's back last year, this 2021. And the good news is that Exchange Online was not impacted, right? The cloud version was not. But then you get, you fast forward to 2022, and this is uh, if about less than a month ago, two more vulnerabilities, zero-day vulnerabilities were discovered in, in Microsoft Exchange. What happened? State-sponsored attackers jumping on that again, and they're attacking those on-premise Exchange servers. And once again, Exchange in the cloud was not impacted. So... You know, we're we're just talking a you know roughly a year's time here, where we've seen significant attacks occurring on on-premise solutions. Boy, I don't know about you, but that certainly would would make me take a good hard look going to the cloud if I wasn't already there. <laughs> Absolutely, and and I do think people have have cottoned on to this, and since the advice has been almost universal, I know we are perhaps unique in only seeing one, but I think most of the managed service providers have seen fewer and fewer of folks who want to have the on-premise now because the advice is so clear. But perhaps the most striking change over the past year and maybe two years, but has been the clear advice of everyone in cybersecurity that enabling multi-factor authentication is now the single most powerful cybersecurity move law firms can make. We've even seen Microsoft again and again speak out about this. And cyber insurance firms almost across the board are demanding that you enable MFA. So would you talk a little bit about why it's so important, John? At the end of the day, MFA is going to significantly improve your security posture. Uh, Microsoft's own data, as they looked at all the Microsoft 365 users that are out there, what they discovered was that those folks that had multi-factor authentication enabled, 99.9% of the credential-based account takeover attacks were stopped because of that. I mean, not quite 100. <laughs> but if you look to Google and what Google's done, when they implemented MFA uh, using their Titan hardware token for their employees, and even today, they say that not a single employee and a single Google employee's account has been compromised since they made that conversion. So that's 100%. 
So when you look at those kinds of stats, it's very, very clear. I mean, and for those folks that maybe aren't that familiar with MFA or 2FA, it's really a second factor. It's another factor for you to use when you're authenticating, when you're logging in to your environment. And they're really, you know, we're jumping on this whole podcast today to talk about reasonableness. And this is really, really reasonable, primarily because MFA, for the most part, generally is free. So that makes it very, very reasonable. The expense to the law firms, to the lawyers, really isn't isn't there at all. There may be some configuration costs, you know, up front, depending on the applications, et cetera, that you're using. But but overall, I mean, you can't get much better than that, right? Almost 100% in blocking, you know, unauthorized attacks and no money. Which road would you take? <laughs> it doesn't get much better than that. But but in spite, in spite of our pleas for clients to adopt this, we have had a couple of law firm clients refuse multi-factor authentication as being too much trouble. They just don't want a second step, and employees hate a second step. They don't want to have to have their phone in the same place as their laptop. They don't want to do something not only on the the laptop to bring it up, but then to authenticate it on the phone. So they don't like any of that. So we documented to these clients that were resisting our advice, we documented it and their refusal to take it. And as you might imagine, both got hit by cyber attacks. You know, I give the law firms full credit. They owned up to their failure to take good advice and asked us very politely if we would now please, having restored their systems, if we would now please install 2FA. They learned. And and sometimes it takes something like that. And thank God there was nothing, you know, really horrible that happened here. It was bad, but it wasn't horrible. So they were good. But John, you know what I think would be helpful? Because people don't understand how easy it is really to do. The, you get used to it. I, I didn't like it at first. I mean, it is one more thing. It's just one more thing. Another and that's what lawyer resistant says. to change. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I was that lawyer too. So if you would tell us about the four kinds of MFA, maybe least secure to most secure, and how easy each of them are. I mean, that's, I think, helpful to people. You know, generally, and I'm going to, again, talk in generalities, I'm going to talk about the technology. I'm not going to talk about people. But everyone's pretty much used to the hey, I can get a text message, you know, that SMS text message to your phone. And that's your second factor. So now you've, you log in, you get this text, you get a number, you type that number in, and off you go. Of all the forms of that second factor, that is the least secure of them for a bunch of technical reasons. There's, you know, a process called SIM swapping, et cetera, because text messaging, basically, if you think about it, it assumes that you, the user, you're the only one that has access to that phone. The software doesn't know that you don't have the phone, somebody else has the phone, or somebody else stole your phone number. But again, if that's the only choice you have, then by all means, you know, use it. It's a heck of a lot better than not having 2FA. But it is the most common one. And, and some folks actually are they're resistant to that, as you know, Sharon, because they say, I don't want to give my, my cell phone to somebody. They don't want to expose their cell phone number. They'll give it to their clients, but they won't give it to a software vendor. I, that, I don't get it. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's, there's that piece of it. That's the, the first and most common one. The second more secure way to do it is to use an authentication app, something like uh, Authy, Duo, Google Authenticator, something you know along those lines. And what that is is you, you install this app on your phone, and it generates a code every 30 seconds. The code changes. The number changes. 
So you're not getting that transmission of that text message. And you log in, and then it's going to say, put the code in. You look at your phone, you launch the app, you look and say, okay, for this particular site, I need, here's my number. And you put that in, and then off you go. So that is a more secure way to do that. Now, having said that, though, not all systems give you multiple choices, right, to do this, to do the text messages, to do the app, you know, et cetera. What I'm describing, though, are if you have a choice between text messages and using the app, use the app, certainly. The third level then is what's called push notifications. This is where you have that authentication app, but you don't get that number, that code when you log in then a notification comes to your phone and then you just answer yes or no or go, no go or stop, you know, go, whatever the the notification, however, comes in. So that's the third level. That's the technology. Now, as you know, Sharon, uh, there's this thing called push fatigue where, (laughs) you know, someone someone will sit there and they'll, and all of a sudden their phone lights up. It's a push notification. And they say, oh, no, no, I'm not logging in. No, I'm not doing that. And then 10 seconds later, another one comes and says, What's going on? No. And then another one, no, no. And they keep answering no. And after a couple of minutes, they get real tired. Ah, oh, to hell with it. Answer yes. <laughs> so, so the person... <laughs> We've seen that, of course, in, oh, in yeah. a real live oh, yeah. case where that's how the intruder got in. <laughs> that's right. So they pound away at you. That's called the fatigue, right? They keep hammering and hammering and hammering till the user just says, ah, and they don't think. They're just annoyed. And they say, okay, go ahead. And that lets the attacker in. But having said that, that's the human element. The technology is is pretty strong. It's the human that screwed it up. Then the fourth and more secure one is that hardware token, the UB key, the Titan key, whatever it is, where you have a physical device. And when you go to log in, you stick this you know key into your phone, into your laptop, whatever it is, and then it reads that, and that's what authorizes you in there. That's the most secure. I've gone through these these four different things, but the one, I think, to talk about the reasonableness, Sharon, that you mentioned and, and why people are resistant is in a large portion of the time, you can say to trust your device, your login for a certain period of time, seven days, 14, 30 days, whatever it is. So you're not annoyed every time by this factor, the second factor. So that helps it a little bit. It does. And of course, you know, the insurance companies are very keen on MFA. So you're probably, you're either not going to get insurance if you don't have it, or you're going to pay a huge premium for not having it. But mostly you're going to get coverage declined. That's correct. So before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Be the best resource you can for your Spanish-speaking clients with the Spanish Group's Legal Translation Service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same-day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured, and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that, and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish Group translates in over 140 languages. Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. 
Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com slash simple. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is what constitutes ethical cybersecurity for law firms today? At this point, John, all legal ethicists agree that law firms have a duty to monitor for a breach. Again, this is a reasonable measure to protect client confidentiality. So tell us, John, what, especially for small firms, what are reasonable measures to monitor for a data breach? I'm going to talk quickly about one of our favorite products, which is a product from Cisco called the Meraki. That's M-E-R-A-K-I. What the Meraki is, is a combination firewall, intrusion detection, intrusion prevention system. And you can get other add-ons like wireless, you know, that kind of thing. But the IDS, the IPS, that intrusion detection, intrusion prevention system is the one that's going to help you and meet your requirement to monitor for that data breach. Originally, you know, IDS's, IPS's, when they first came out, were thousands of dollars. The Meraki, however, is only a few hundred bucks. I mean, they make larger ones for larger firms, bigger firms, mid-sized firms, large firms. But for the solo small market, you can get a Meraki in the three to $400 range. It's a one-time purchase, and that's the hardware cost. You license the software. The software is licensed. We do it for our clients for a three-year term. And that three-year term gets the cost of that license down to around $300, $350 a year. So it's very, very reasonable. There's that, that word again, right? <laughs> and what this does then is it brings that to you, right? It brings that. It brings a lot of other features, but that, that ability to monitor, you know, for that data breach, to get all that functions, you know, built into that, that system, a very, very affordable solution. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to talk to about that? Or do you want me to head over to third-party security assessments? <laughs> well, we could, you know, I could spend a lot of time talking about the Meraki. I really do like it. I mean, this cloud configurable, you know, all the different features, that, you know, et cetera, you know, for it. Maybe we should say, John, too, that our clients love it. They've had it for a long time. It works like a, a draft horse, never gives up, and it's not crazy expensive. So the fact that we were able to locate such a fine product at such a low cost has really been a blessing for the clients. I was going to say we've been implementing these for years you know, for our clients. And the other things we want to say is, you know, we don't get any financial kickback either. <laughs> oh, no, not for, for, no. It's just the best thing we found, so we're sharing. <laughs> All right, how about if we move on to security assessments by third parties? And cyber insurance companies really want that now. A lot of them require it. And, you know, here they're doing you a favor, even though it costs money, because you can't fix what you don't know is broken. So these are really valuable assessments because you get an outside consultant who does a full assessment of your network. And usually you can and should be able to get this done by paying a flat fee, which includes a report documenting what was done, as well as the critical vulnerabilities, which you need to fix right away, the medium level vulnerabilities, which you might have a little time to budget to fix those, and more minor vulnerabilities, which you can plan to address as you can and your budget allows. Clients, too, often request these assessments, and they can sort of be used as a marketing tool, not one that you would use publicly, but when in private discussions with a potential or actual client. Client. Clients want reassurance these days that their data is secure. And of course, a lot of law firms have been breached and clients have been impacted. And I think you have a cyber insurance tip to offer, John? 
Yeah, one of the, the tips that I want to tell folks about is it's all about the broker. Make sure that you've got a broker that's familiar with cyber coverage because they're your advocate. You know, we had our own, Sharon, as you know, our own personal experience where, you know, our broker that we've had, our insurance broker that we've had for over 20 years just wasn't up to speed with a lot of the cyber things. And we weren't getting what we felt was was adequate coverage for a fair price. And especially as the prices started going higher and higher, right, the 30 40% a year increase in premiums, you know, we got off that horse, got on a different horse, changed brokers, and the broker that we ended up with, very, very, very good, and knew the marketplace, knew the players, and we're actually paying less in our premiums and getting better and more coverage. And we have found that this is a tip that most people actually don't know about. So do explore your broker because that is a great tip. And then I want to move to one of the most important and reasonable cybersecurity measures you can take, and that is to offer at least once a year and twice as better cybersecurity awareness training for your law firm employees because employees are involved in, and I've now seen in the last couple weeks, I've seen 80% of successful attacks, 82% and 85%. But you get the point. They're involved in the vast majority of them some way or another. So this kind of training is very important in a hybrid work-from-home world, which we're still living in, and it may be required by your cyber insurance carrier, more and more we see that it is, to state the obvious if you go to a large cybersecurity firm like CrowdStrike, which is a great firm, you're going to get a bigger price tag for that training. So smaller firms are fine. And if you have a solo, small, mid-sized firm, you might want that so long, you know, as you can make sure they have high-level cybersecurity certifications, maybe you get some references, et cetera, et cetera, but you want the more modestly priced. And just by way of example, Sensei's one-hour presentation is $500. And trust me, employees cannot take in more than an hour of this kind of material. They are simply overwhelmed by the information that comes with cybersecurity. So one hour, we find, is perfect. We suggest that you never use in-house IT because they don't carry a big enough stick. They're just, you know, they're people that are known, the outsiders coming in from somewhere else, the pros, the pros from Dover, as they used to say on MASH, those are better. So make sure you get a recording of the training so it's available to anyone who couldn't make it and so you can use it as well to train new employees because it will be viable for some time. And the training session itself should include recommendations for safe computing behavior, education on spam, phishing, including standard phishing, targeted phishing, voice phishing, SMS phishing. There's an endless pool of phishing with some real-life examples to make the lessons stick. The employees need to truly understand wire fraud and business email compromise and how the schemes work. Criminals are brilliant at social engineering, so they need to hear some of those real life stories too, to hammer the lesson home. There's a lot more topics in this session, but I'll run out of time <laughs> if I try to list them all. But you get the message. But this sort of thing, you know, for $500 or so, that's a very reasonable measure and that's well within the ethical requirements. I will put my hat on that as well, Sharon. You may not have a choice, right? The cyber insurance provider may require that you do that. I can't, the last year, two years, all the applications that we've seen, they specifically ask that. They ask if you have it and or they require it, one or the other, but it's one or the other for sure. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. 
If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. Democracy Decoded, a podcast by Campaign Legal Center, examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. Listen at democracydecoded.org to their new season, which takes a deep dive into democracy at the state and local level by highlighting different ways to ensure that every voter's voice is heard. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is what constitutes ethical cybersecurity for law firms today? So, John, let's move to zero trust architecture, three words which are kind of foggy to other people in in our profession. Uh, The lawyers just don't get it. But I think you and I both agree that ZTA, as it is known, will be ethically mandatory within the next two years. So we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. But this is beginning to be something all the large firms are working on, many of the mid-sized firms, and the solo smalls, of course, are lagging as they always do. But let's explain what ZTA is and the need to budget for it. I should mention before I turn it over to you that the federal government is on track to adopt ZTA in whole by the end of 2024. And that's going to create, I think, a standard by which we're all going to be governed. So John, tell us about ZTA and why it's so critical and why protecting the perimeter is worthless these days (laughs) and why VPNs are going to go away. Well, you know, VPNs are on their way out, but zero trust architecture, you know, basically in a nutshell, and I'm I'm not going to get into the whole propeller head, you know, pocket protector explanation of it, but essentially you can't trust anything anymore. We used to have this wall, right, the moat, the perimeter around. We knew where our employees were. We knew where our computers were. You were inside that wall, inside that moat. So we knew what to protect, Right, We knew where the folks were. We had on-premise servers. We had whatever. Well, that's not the case anymore. As we, we've been talking about here, we're more in the cloud. We have more mobility. It's not just one cloud. We're in multiple clouds. So they're all over the place. Our employees are all over the place. They're out at home, they're working a couple days, if not, you know, all the time, or they're in the office. So now you've got this device that goes, what is that, that mash thing, right? <laughs> Episode Sharon, it's like, I can go in, I can go out, I can go in. <laughs> <laughs> that's, fra- that's Frank Burns. <laughs> but so you're not really sure where it is. So basically what Zero Trust is, is trying to impose upon folks is that we need to authenticate every device, every person, every access to data, every time right? It's not automatic. And then once you're connected, we have to re-authenticate. That's in a nutshell what Zero Trust is. VPNs have been used as a way to have this remote access, right? This secure encrypted connection to come into the network. The fallacy is that, you know, folks think that VPN, the folks and cyber insurers, by the way, the carriers, believe that this is the panacea. VPNs are bulletproof, yada, yada. No, that's not true. VPNs have vulnerabilities. In fact, I just read a recent study a couple weeks ago. There are over 500 documented vulnerabilities for VPNs that are contained within that what's called the CVE database. And 
So if, if you've got that many of them, and they're not patched, by the way, <laughs> that's why they're still in that database. That's one of the reasons that, that VPNs are, are coming out of favor because of the vulnerabilities that are already there have been identified to them. But another reason that folks are looking at is the VPN, you assume that device is trusted. So imagine this, if it's outside the network and that device gets compromised, but yet it's coming into the network, it can wreak havoc. So that single infected device can actually infect the entire network. So that's not very good either, right? <laughs> that's another reason that ZTA is coming on strong and why folks are moving away from VPN. So I, I hope that answers it. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And really part of our message here is this may not be ethically mandatory yet, but it's going to be soon. So you might as well start learning about it and budgeting for it. Yeah, budgeting, I think, is the big important thing. So let us end with previewing for our next Digital Detectives episode a bit because we were kind of excited to see from a friend of ours that Pennsylvania has issued two new ethics opinion, one of which suggests that it is unethical to use email to communicate with clients. And I can hear the, oh, no, uh, already from, <laughs> from the lawyers. Um, and, and then there was another one. Oh, following what, did I do? On what did I do with that fax machine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they're going to have to dust the dust off. But anyway, um, and then there was another opinion following on the heels of a recent New York ethics opinion stating that it is unethical to share your contact information with apps without meeting a list of criteria as to how it's going to be used, et cetera, et cetera. And our guest for that session will be Dan Sigel, the chair of the Pennsylvania Bar Ethics Committee. Dan is very impassioned on this subject, but I think that, you know, some of it will be controversial for some people. And that's said, I believe we've given the audience a lot to think about for one episode, don't you, John? We sure as heck have, and uh, hopefully their heads aren't hurting. <laughs> <laughs> well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or an Apple podcast. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, managed technology, and managed cybersecurity services at senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on legaltalknetwork.com and in iTunes.